0: Two brief comments before we look at our passage. First comment is that there are situations that involve conflict where there is an innocent party. I just wanna make that clear. Think of a bully on a playground. Statistics say that some of you here are like that innocent child on the playground who experienced bullying or oppression. Our passage today is not directed to the person experiencing oppression. Rather, this passage is directed to those who sin in their relationships with others. And second, I just wanna say this up front, neither this sermon nor this passage says everything that the Bible has to say about conflict, okay? So with that, let me pray for us. Our Father and our God, we come this morning. We thank you that we can gather Together, as your people, as your children. And Lord, we, we thank you that we can hear you speak and then respond. And we ask your Holy Spirit to enable us to hear you speak and then respond appropriately. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. David and Nancy's first year of marriage was not what they expected. Fights, quarrels, conflict. David was an intern at the church that he and Nancy attended, and several months into their marriage, they recognized a pattern that became known as Sunday night fights. David's weekends were intense, Saturday was a hectic day of preparation, and then Sunday began at 5 a.m. and didn't end until 8 p.m. It included a day full of intense listening, informal counseling, and lots and lots of people. By the time David and Nancy got home around 8 p.m., David had one thing on his mind. Rest. Rest from relating to fellow humans. For Nancy, she had supported her husband all weekend, praying, teaching Sunday school, hosting lunch. She watched in admiration As David talked with other people, offering what seemed like an endless supply of patience and attentiveness, by 8 p.m. on Sunday, Nancy had one thing on her mind, personal connection. David wanted rest, Nancy wanted relationship, and so began the Sunday night fight. Maybe you can relate to David and Nancy. Like David and Nancy, maybe maybe you wonder if there's a remedy for your conflict. You might look for some communication tips, and some of those could be of some help. But God locates the root of our conflict elsewhere, in our hearts. The Bible teaches that our actions and behaviors flow from our hearts. What we want, what we fear... What we love are the root from which the fruit of our actions and behaviors flow. And that's James's point in our passage. He tells us that the remedy for our conflict is recognizing the root and receiving God's grace. Until we get to the root and receive God's grace, we won't experience lasting change. And so in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, we learn God's remedy for your conflict involves two activities. Number one, recognize the roots of your conflict. And number two, receive God's grace for your conflict. Recognize the roots and receive God's grace. Well, James gets right to it in verse one. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? The, the quarrels and fights that James has in mind likely are verbal conflicts because he has just addressed the destruction caused by our words in chapter three. Quarrels and fights don't exclude physical conflict, but the focus here seems to be the warfare Of words. And so now he asks, What is the root of your conflict? And James answers, Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? James says, The root of your conflict are passions at war within. The word passions there can be translated pleasures. What James means is that within us are pleasures or passions that we constantly seek to satisfy. Passions for money, for power, for pleasure, for being right, for safety, for approval, for possessions, for honor, for ease, for well-behaved children, for a spouse, for a different kind of spouse, for respect, and for a thousand other things. This diagnosis runs counter to our own. When we experience conflict, we tend to see the problem as outside us, right? Other people, our circumstances. And to be sure, the Bible is realistic about interpersonal dynamics. Harsh words by someone toward us do make it harder to respond rightly. But in the final analysis, James identifies the root of our conflict, not outside us, but within. Passions at war within. One songwriter put it like this, there's fighting in the Middle East, there's fighting down on 7th Street, and there are fights in my own house on given days. It's like something's lurking deep inside, can't seem to be satisfied, but life was not meant to be lived this way. So our passions at war within. But the question is, how are passions for things like money, power, or pleasure at war within us? How is that? And James identifies the repeated pattern in verse two. He says this, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. James says that we want certain things, we're prevented from getting certain things, and so we respond sinfully. Sinful anger, sinful words. And here's the thing, these passions are often desires for good things. You want the approval of your friends. You want your children to make good choices. You want a spouse to appreciate your efforts but you and I are prevented from getting our passions and so we go to war. James uses descriptive words. He says, murders, fights, and quarrels. We murder one another by attacking with words, yelling and screaming, name-calling, using profanity, saying hurtful things. Or we can murder one another by withdrawal, right? Stone-cold silence that says, you're dead to me. Whether you tend to attack or withdraw, the pattern is the same, your passions are prevented, you're prevented from getting your passions and so you go to war. When our five boys were younger, there were fights in our home almost every day. And here's the thing, I was a big part of the problem. The repeated pattern was this. I gave an instruction, followed by less than a less than obedient response, followed by my angry words. Maybe some of you can relate to that repeated pattern. And I knew that my anger was sinful and hurtful. I knew I needed to change. And so I did all that I knew. I told myself, stop being angry. Stop being angry. Big shock. How do you think that worked for me? It was very, very short-lived. It was, it was short-lived change because it didn't travel to my heart. It didn't address my heart. Eventually, over time, I began to recognize some of the roots of my sinful anger. One of those roots was a desire for respect. Now, respect is a good thing, right? Respect from a child to a parent is a good thing, and vice versa, right? But here's what happened. My desire for a good thing became an ultimate thing. In the moment, I wanted respect more than I wanted to obey God. Another desire for me that I recognized was ease. Here's the thing I didn't want to stop doing what I was doing when the disobedience came. I didn't want to stop doing what I was doing, you know, to lovingly, patiently discipline my kids. I wanted to keep doing what I was doing. I wanted life my way. I was prevented from getting my passion, right? So I went to war. For me, real change began with a simple question. What do you want? What do you want? In the moment of my sinful response, what do you want? What did I want or what did I not want? You can recognize the root By asking this question for yourself. God says the remedy to your conflict begins by recognizing the root of passions at war within. But here's the thing. James sees a connection between our relationships with people and our relationship to God. His insight is this. That our conflict with other people reveals conflict with God. Our willingness to sin, to get what we want, reveals in that moment that we're more committed to ourselves than we're committed to God, which puts us in conflict with God. The Bible calls this commitment to self, wait for it, pride. Look at verses two through four. James continues, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In James's day, friendship meant that two people shared the same mindset, the same values, and the same outlook on life. So to be friends with the world is to live with the same mindset as people who live apart from God, as people who do not know God, which is a mindset fundamentally of self. It's a mindset where the focus is on self and the service of the self. A willingness to get what I want reveals a commitment to self above a commitment to God. It's a mindset that says, in effect, my kingdom come, my will be done. That's pride. And James says pride is war with God. This means two things. There's no neutrality there's no spiritual Switzerland, right? You're either with Jesus or you're against him. If you haven't turned and turned to Jesus in repentance and faith, you're not in a neutral position. You're an enemy. For some of you here, your mindset is to serve yourself now and turn to Jesus later. You've been exposed to the claims of Jesus over and over again for months, for years. And yet you're still on the fence. You continue to resist Jesus. And James says there's no neutrality. Pride is war with God. Second, if you're a Christian, you once were an enemy. The good news is that Jesus, in love, ransomed you from the enemy camp through his death on the cross. What that means is you are not your own. You're not your own. You belong to God. You were bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He paid the price to buy you back from the enemy camp and bring you to himself, to make you his friend. And more than a friend, a beloved bride. And that's that's why James says that your pride and mine is spiritual adultery. Jesus promises to give his bride himself, his love, and all the good gifts that she needs. But like an ungrateful and proud wife, we're not satisfied with all that Jesus is and does for us, so we go looking for other lovers. Jesus said it this way, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money or God and a thousand other things. And here's what it comes down to, I think. You cannot serve God and yourself. I cannot serve God and myself. When we're willing to sin to get what we want, You and I are serving ourselves, which is pride. And James says that pride sets us against God and sets us against one another. You can begin to see pride in your own life by asking a simple question How do you live for yourself? How do I live? for myself in your everyday life? This afternoon, tomorrow, Thursday, how do I live for myself? You see what James is doing here? He's getting to the heart of your conflict and mine. Earlier in the letter, James identified his Christian readers as double-minded, literally double-souled or double-hearted. And what he means is, yes, the Spirit has made you alive with Christ, and so there's a love for God there, but corruption remains, and you also love yourself. You're double-hearted. We are double-hearted. And here's the thing about your conflict and mine, God is at work in your conflict. He has good purposes in mind. He uses your conflict to reveal what's already in your heart so that he can change you from double-hearted to more and more single-hearted. A person who more and more loves God and loves others. A person more like Jesus, but this work of God, if we'll allow it, has to travel through the heart. That's why James says in verse five, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? It's a difficult verse to translate. There are two basic translations, English translations of this verse. If you want more details, talk to me after. I'll give them to you. But I think you can really put them together. And I think that that verse basically means this. God, like a devoted husband, passionately desires the hearts of his proud and wayward people. He passionately wants you. He wants your heart. He wants to take your double heart and make it a heart. Devoted to God. God desires you and I to stop living for our own personal kingdoms because it sets us against him and against others. And so James brings us back to the central question of scripture. Will you live for yourself or for God? Do you love the world or do you love Jesus? Do you trust people or the true God? Do you live for your own glory or for God's glory? The remedy for conflict begins with recognizing the root of your conflict. But once we recognize those roots, then what? What do we do about it? Which brings us to the second activity. First, you recognize the roots of your conflict. Second, you receive God's grace for your conflict. Receive God's grace for your conflict. Look at verse six. But, love that little word. I learned from a Saturday morning cartoon show that that's a conjunction. Conjunction. It's a strong contrastive, and it's a beautiful biblical word. But he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. Sounds straightforward, sounds simple. But when confronted with sin, what do you and I tend to do? Where do we tend to go? inward right can i get an amen we tend to go inward when we're confronted with our sin we tend to think if we're going to break free of the passions and pride that drive our conflict then the solution must be within me my thoughts my efforts my will right? Stop being angry. Stop loving control. Stop loving ease. And to all this, the Bible says, no. No. There's no remedy to our conflicts within ourselves. God gives more grace. The remedy we need is not found in greater inward resources. The remedy we need comes from outside us. The remedy we need is given. The remedy we need is grace. And grace has a name. The name of Jesus. Jesus is grace lived out in the flesh. Paul says this, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The grace that transfers us from the enemy camp, trains us to renounce worldly passions. Here's what that means. If you're a Christian, God has good purposes in your conflict. He's training you to turn from worldly passions by teaching you what's really inside you. And it also means that the primary reality in which you live is the grace of Jesus Christ. God doesn't forsake you in your struggle with passions and pride. He doesn't condemn you. He doesn't withdraw in silence. He doesn't speak angry words. He gives more grace. But there's a condition to receive God's grace. Look at the rest of verse six with me. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The condition to receive God's grace is humility. Yeah. Humility is the key that unlocks the door to God's overflowing, amazing, astounding grace. It's like opening the door and a flood of grace rushes to us. But here's the thing. Pride is our default. It's your default. Can I say that to you this morning? It's your default. It's my default. We're proud. That's our default. And so hear these words again. Let's Together, hear these words again. God opposes the proud. We need to let that sink in. Pride is angered by criticism, pride is defensive, pride shifts blame. Pride minimizes our own sin and maximizes the sins of others. And more than anything, pride resists God's grace. Pride refuses to acknowledge its need of God's grace. Pride, as we've said, sets us against God, which means this, pride is our greatest danger. Your greatest danger this morning and mine is pride. One author said it this way People and circumstances can be hurtful. And I know that every one of you would say, Yes, people and circumstances can be hurtful and often are, but they don't harm our soul. Pride does. Pride is the cancer that kills our relationship to God and to one another. Humility is not natural for any of us. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. And so one place to begin in your conflict is to ask God to give you humility. Because humility is the condition to receive God's grace. But what does humility look like? In verses seven through nine, James describes the hallmarks of humility. He says this, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Happy, happy verses this morning, right? It's interesting, there are 10 commands in these two verses, 10. What this means is that humility is not passive, but active. Humility acts and in the process receives God's grace. And it's an important point because the Holy Spirit doesn't just zap us, instantly change our double hearts, Rather, the Spirit grows us through a process, an ongoing process, of recognizing the root and receiving God's grace over and over and over again. Let's briefly look at some of the hallmarks of humility. Humility submits. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submit to God by dwelling on who God is and how he wants you to live. Dwell on who God is and how he wants you to live. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You belong to God. You're a servant, and so am I. We're not our own. We're not the masters of our own destiny. We're servants of the living God. You submit to God by remembering who he is who you are and then by living how he wants you to live husbands submit to God by spending less time thinking about your wife's submission and more time thinking about God's command for you to love your wife as Christ loved the church and give himself up for her here's the thing husbands You're not the master of your home. Jesus is. Humility resists. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The devil will tempt you to minimize your sin, nurse your hurt, right? Or believe you've exhausted God's grace. Resist by refusing to listen to yourself. Resist by refusing to listen to yourself and instead, listen to God in his word. You know, one of the reasons we read God's word consistently, it's not just to check a box, it's so that I can hear God speak. So that I can stop listening to myself and start listening to God speak. Humility resists. Humility draws near. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. When we sin, our tendency is to run and hide from God. Humility believes that God gives more grace. And so humility draws near to receive grace and find help in time of need. And here's the thing. James tells us how we draw near in the second half of verse 8. He says, cleanse your hands you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Here's what that means. To draw near, you first cleanse your hands. You honestly name the outward expressions of sin. You name them biblically, sinful anger, hateful words, hateful silence. You confess your sin to God with biblical categories and to others, and then you say, will you please forgive me? Not I'm sorry. If you've sinned, you need forgiveness. That's how you cleanse your hands. To purify your double heart, you tell God that there are other things that matter to you more than he does. You name them. Trust me, he won't be shocked. He won't be surprised. You name those things. And then you ask God to make him the desire of your heart. That's how you purify your heart. When we draw near to Jesus by cleansing our hands and purifying our hearts, he promises to draw near to us. Another hallmark of humility is godly sorrow. Look at verse nine. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. These last five commands speak of godly sorrow. Not all sorrow is godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow involves or includes tears, grief, and regret. But worldly sorrow is a self-centered sorrow. It's a sorrow for getting caught, sorrow for losing a job a reputation or a worldly treasure but the focus of godly sorrow is god godly sorrow is grieved primarily because of the damage done against god and against other people godly sorrow is a great good because it produces repentance that leads to salvation and life And God will graciously give this good gift of godly sorrow to those who ask him. God tells us the remedy for conflict is to recognize the roots and receive God's grace. But there's a condition. There's a condition to receiving God's grace is called humility. And we learn in this passage that humility submits, resists, draws near, Cleanses, purifies, and experiences godly sorrow. And the question for you and I this morning is how will we respond? How will we respond to what God says? Believing God's remedy for conflict is essential to experiencing it. Believing God's remedy for conflict is essential. To experiencing it. So how will you pl- apply the activities of recognizing the root and receiving God's grace to your life today, tomorrow, this week? Well, they didn't know it, but God was at work in David and Nancy's conflict. He had good purposes in mind. He was sovereignly orchestrating their marriage to reveal their hearts so they could recognize the roots and receive God's grace. Their conflict didn't instantly disappear, but as they began to apply God's remedy, their communication slowly became more productive, more gracious. When they did have conflict, they were able to resolve it a little more quickly. Their double hearts were slowly learning to love God and love each other, slowly. Did I mention slowly? Slowly, that's how it works. But maybe you're here this morning and yours is a stubborn conflict. For years, nothing has changed. Maybe you're asking this question, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth to humble yourself again and again and again when nothing in your situation seems to change? And the answer is yes. It is worth it because of the results of receiving God's grace. Look at verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. He will exalt you. God promises that when you humbly receive his grace in Jesus, he will exalt you. He will confirm that you're a loved child and conform your heart to Christ, and one day you will receive the crown of life. Let's pray.